Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is a story told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Specter Philip Harvey. This information pertains to the period ending August 3rd, 1966. Interview subject is Bruce Lenny. Interview number 1-34-656-667. Spirit confessional recall number two, date January 24th, 2003. Chapter 1. Phil Spector and Lenny Bruce Look, other people thought I was really wild. Just really far out there. Like they thought that maybe I'd lost my mind and maybe I had. I'm not talking about the so-called obscenities in my act on stage. It wasn't even an act, okay? I'm talking about later. I'm talking about after I'd been arrested for the last time. And people were bored with me. They moved on. I moved on too. I moved into that house up in the hills. One off Hollywood Boulevard. Just shot up the strip from Phil's place. People would visit and take one look at my study. It was a mess. Even I could see that, okay? I'd give them that. It was a mess that made sense in my mind. It made sense outside of my mind. It made sense on paper. To them, they saw something far out. There were hundreds of pieces of legal paper, you know, that yellow line stuff, all over the floor. I wrote a word in the middle of each piece, just one word, a phrase, and then I'd rip the page out, toss it on the floor. I'd write another word on the next one, another phrase, just one, one of those stray thoughts. And then I'd rip the piece of paper up and toss it on the floor with the others. Phil brought Mike Spencer up to the house. Mike was one of his piano guys. Mike had some friends with him. Phil was always bringing people by the house to say hello. Hey, come on, come meet Lenny, that sort of thing. Ladies and gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. Mike stood in my study, just staring at the hundreds of pieces of paper on the floor. He couldn't believe that this was how a comedian worked. What can I say, man? At that point, it was the only way that made sense to me. My life was all fucked. The judge finally came down on me with that narcotics thing, that junkie rap. 
260 bucks, one year suspended sentence, couple years of probation. And that was after everything else. Blue shirts had put me in handcuffs something like six times during the first half of the 60s. They arrested me in San Francisco for saying cocksucker of all things. They arrested me in Los Angeles for saying schmuck. They squeezed me in Philadelphia. And that was for the junk, I think. City of brotherly love, you dig? And then they arrested me in Chicago, New York City. Nightclubs all over the country put me on a blacklist. A list of one, brother, let me tell you that. I got yanked from the stage of a burlesque club of all places because I was too dirty. Dirty Lenny. Dirty Lenny. Going on, sir. And they wouldn't even let me in the United Kingdom anymore. Or Australia. Wouldn't want to corrupt a kangaroo. So what can I say, man? I was drained physically, emotionally. I was bankrupt, too, and I couldn't keep from sticking that goddamn needle in my arm anymore. Phil was the only one who believed in me. Phil knew destitute. Phil knew loneliness. Phil Spector knew the face of a man who had been forsaken by his peers by the beloved old guard establishment. I was penniless, addicted. I guess Phil saw a kindred spirit in me, a brother. He took me to his place on La Colina Drive in Beverly Hills. Jesus Christ, it was a fucking mansion. He let me use his office down on the strip. Threw some money at me when I needed it. Phil even went on the Merv Griffin show, defended me in front of another Phil. Phil Foster, that old schmuck. Foster was this standoffish old prick who had just finished telling Merv that he hated new music. The kind of music Phil was making. And then they bring Phil out from the wings, ambush Foster with him. Phil's there with his newsboy cap holding on for dear life on top of his bushy hair and his sideburns that had taken on a life of their own, taking over half his face. Merv introduces Phil as the king of rock and roll records, which, you know, he was. And Foster can't see it because he's some old Sinatra crony. Foster starts beating on Phil the way those old guard comics do. It's all these pricks know what to do. It's like the verbal equivalent of sitting on top of someone's face. It's fucking rope, man. It's lame. I record Lenny Bruce, Phil proclaimed, right there on national television. And I was a mess, man. Persona non grata. America knew it. And sure as shit, old Merv Griffin knew it, too. Phil Spector didn't give one fuck. That song by the Crystals that Phil wrote, he's a rebel. Yeah, that could have been written about me. I was Phil's rebel. And I yelled that rebel yell louder than Phil Spector would ever dare. Phil Spector was not hip. His reputation preceded him, sure. The tycoon of teen, all that nonsense. They said he had his finger on the pulse of young America, and that he turned something disposable into art. I didn't know anything about that. That wasn't my world. Talk to me about Cannonball Adderley or Bill Evans, and I'm picking up what you're throwing down. Talk to me about Darlene Love and the teddy bears, and you've lost me. So when they say he had his finger on the pulse, I only ever saw his fingers wrapped around cold, hard cash. He took the pulse of money pretty damn well. He knew what it felt like to touch, what it smelled like. You could smell the residue of Chris Bills and his caddy, man. It was all over him like aftershave. He had the kind of money that allowed him to catch a flight from L.A. to San Francisco last minute on a Sunday evening to see a midnight show by yours truly. He was just hanging around one Sunday afternoon and felt like getting out of the house. Threw down his bucks, United Flight this, United Flight that. And he was at the Basin Street West when I took the stage at 12 sharp. Dirty Lenny, 
Jesus, can you imagine that kind of cash? I was up to my eyeballs in debt at that point. I'd never live comfortably again, or so I thought. I was, let's see, maybe 400 grand in the hole at that point. In the Basin Street West, you should have seen this place. Phil was there with some DJs from Los Angeles, and then there were a handful of other people. A handful of this generous man. Midnight on a Sunday, it wasn't like it used to be. I didn't even have enough cash to buy a pack of smokes, let alone a goddamn fix. I felt like a schmuck. I couldn't let anyone know I felt like a schmuck. So here comes Phil. Smells like dollar bills. Crisp ones, sure, but crumpled ones, too. The ones you find at the bottom of your pockets in your Levi's when you're doing laundry. Balled up, forgotten about. He wants me to come down to L.A., spend some time with him. He wants to produce some of my shows. He's got an idea for a residence at the Fonda Theater. He wants to release my next live album. Can I say, he came on strong, and what did I know? I knew enough not to say no. I'm playing to a handful of sorry-ass fucks at the Basin Street West. One of the only gigs I could find at the time. I was broke, I was down, I was out. Here's this guy, and he's basically rolling out the red carpet. He may have had the means, but he certainly was not hip. I mean, he may have talked the talk, he may have worn the shades and popped the collar of his peacoat and dangled the occasional cigarello from his lips, but the man was the squarest of the squares. He didn't walk no walk, but he liked how I walked the walk. Phil looked at me and saw a guy with a dirty mouth. A guy who said what he wanted. A guy who didn't give a fuck. He saw a drug addict. He saw a drug addict with an arrest record longer than the personnel sheet for one of his wall of sound sessions. He was close to being a has-been himself. Maybe he saw a kindred spirit in me, a couple of dried up, tossed out losers. He told me about how he had made the biggest songs in the world for acts that simply turned their backs on him. And about the groups that he hit big with and then struggled to hit big with again. Those Ronettes and Righteous Brothers, again, not my bag, man. But Phil told me that he was the true artist, the true architect, the one who allowed everyone else a few minutes of infamy on the dial. And then it just all slipped from his hands. And you know what? I let him see whatever he wanted to see. Phil had the cash and he wanted to give the cash to me. And that's all that mattered. He could put me on whatever pedestal he wanted. Sure, I hung out with him in LA, spent a lot of time at that old Woolworth mansion of his, sat down in the back of that caddy with him while we cruised down La Brea so he could grab a couple dogs from Pink's. I always gave him shit for that. It's all lips and assholes, Phil, I told him. Made him laugh. And maybe that's what he needed. Me? I needed bread. I needed bread to buy my daughter a birthday present. Needed money for a pack of smokes. Needed money for other things that I didn't tell Phil about. He was on a need-to-know basis, as was I, I suppose. I went to Danny Davis for the cash, Phil's business manager. Phil told him to give me whatever I needed, no questions asked. One time I overheard Danny talking on the phone about how I was just a phase for Phil. That Phil went through people like he went through hit records. So I decided to double down, squeeze as much juice as I could get. Lend in my ear when Phil was looking for one to bend. Look, I knew about his past. I knew about the shit he had endured. His asthma, his allergy to sunlight. He was a fat kid who was teased relentlessly. He never shook that thing with his father, either. Phil told everyone that his old man had a heart attack. Just some normal, run-of-the-mill cover story. But he told me the real story. He told me all the real stories. I'm telling you, the guy thought he was talking to himself when he was talking to me. I, I can't explain it. He told me the thing with this old man was April. It was a big deal that it was April. For some reason, that fact really stuck in his brain, 48, 49, sometime around then. He made some passing reference to debts, to organized crime, to stress, and depression. 
That was the fuzzy part the party was clear about. Was the part where his old man parked his car on the curb of Myrtle Avenue in Brooklyn, took a tube and put one end in the exhaust pipe, put the other end in the front window, rolled the window up tight, and turned the car on. What a way to go, am I right? I mean, shit, I don't know. What do I know about taking in a lung full of carbon monoxide? Seems like a hell of a way to go. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. One night, Phil wouldn't let me leave his car. I'm talking about that caddy, the limo, right? He did. Cadillacs can do things that no other motor car ever did. That thing was a beast. Shit, a couple guys like us could have lived in that thing for a few days. And this night, I really thought that was going to happen, that we'd live in the thing. He just didn't want me to leave him. Not then, not yet. It was so late and the sun was almost up again. It was late, it was early, what was the difference? Phil and I were both living the kind of lives that didn't pay attention to the day of the week, let alone what hour it was. We sat in the back of that caddy together, one across from the other. He just kept talking to me. I would make a movement, motion towards the door, he put a hand up, asked me another question, asked me where I was going, tell me another story. Hey Lenny, did I tell you about the time? Give me a reason to stay. The caddy idled. We sat, talked until we ran out of things to talk about. When he had nothing else to talk about, we listened to the engine hum and purr. He didn't want to go back to his place all alone. The guy was the biggest pop producer on the planet, Dave, but he was always alone. Charles Foster Kane going back to Xanadu for another lonely night. We had just driven back from Cantor's, out on Fairfax, 24-7 joint, kosher, seen and be seen, the whole scene, the whole night. You had the knock worse? The knockwurst at Cantor's. Have you had it? Out of sight. It was late, so late. Nighthawks at the diner late. Probably 2 a.m. Doesn't matter how late it gets in L.A. The lights are always on. The neon hums above the storefront. Sounds like steak sizzling on the grill. And it's bright, too, man. Shit, sometimes L.A. at night, it feels more alive than it does during the day. There's that big electric hum above 419 North Fairfax. Cantor's Fairfax. Open 24 hours. Bakery. Delicatessen. You could tell what time it was by the crowd at Cantor's. You didn't need a watch. If the joint was full of a bunch of octogenarians taking long slurps of soup, it was mid-morning. The place was jumping with a bunch of wired kids kicking out from the last party and looking for the next one. It was 2 a.m. Phil took me with him to meet with Frank Zappa that night. Phil wanted the company, wanted a familiar face with him in case Frank bored him to tears. Of course, he brought one of his bodyguards with him too, might have been Big Red. Phil thought he was the most important person in the world, and the bodyguard helped sell that image. It was the ultimate hustle. Frank was doing a little hustling himself, I'm sure of it. The big labels were a bit skeptical of him. Everyone was skeptical of him and his band, the mothers of invention. Long hairs, beards, looked like a bunch of axe murderers, he dig. Frank needed a label to release his first record. He thought maybe Phil could get involved. Put it out on his Phillies label. I think Frank saw a fellow outcast, a fellow member of the Fringe. Frank thought he had found his meal ticket. And of course, there was Frank's idea of fringe, and then there was Phil's idea of fringe, and the two were light years apart. Frank brought this cat with him, Denny Bruce. Denny Bruce, no shit. I said, are you shitting me? Who the fuck is this guy? He had to be fucking with me, right? Am I right, Denny fucking Bruce? I looked this guy straight in his eyes and I said, are you fucking with me, man? I swear I thought it was some cosmic joke, some cosmic 2 a.m. joke on a junkie Jones in for something sharp and hot at a kosher deli on Fairfax. And Denny Bruce said, nah, man, I'm Denny Bruce. 
No relation. No shit. Frank starts talking about how he changed his name as a tribute to me. Ha! So Denny corrects him. The name has nothing to do with me. His real name was Leonard Schneider, and he needs something a little less Jew and a little more goy for showbiz. I get that. Me and Frank, we got into it. He looked at me and saw a kindred spirit. Frank thought I was some messiah, no joke. All Frank wanted was to question authority, rail against authority, and here, he had the guy who took that anti-authority jab all the way to the bitter end. I couldn't have cared less, Jack, Jack, Frank, whatever the fucking name is, I just needed to get through this social engagement so that I could feel okay about hitting Phil up for some more cash, which of course meant more junk. And then we were back home, the caddy limo rolling up to my place out on West Hollywood Boulevard, way up there in the weeds of Tinseltown. I just needed a fix. That's all I could think about. It's all I had thought about all night. If Phil had any idea, he didn't care. He wouldn't know a needle if it jumped from the ground and poked him in the ass. I kept my secrets pretty close to the vest. Phil's secrets weren't kept at all. At least not around me. They tumbled out. They spewed forth. They were blurted. There was no embargo on the kinds of things that came out of his mouth. He used the stories to keep me hanging around. After he doled out the money, he liked to think about his old man. Whatever it is you want to say, you and now, in the car, outside my place, way out in the willy-wags of Hollywood Boulevard, he was telling me more secrets. Secrets that would buy him a few more minutes with me, a few more minutes before he had to be alone again. He was telling me about the time he got pissed on by a couple of kids who followed him into a bathroom. After he just played a show. The Teddy Bears, that's what they were called, which, I mean, in all fairness, sounds like the name of a band that wants to get pissed on in a men's bathroom, if you know what I'm saying. Here's Phil in his flat top and embroidered sweater. He's the manifestation of a mark, a square. And this is back when he couldn't hide being a square. It's the late 50s, I think. He said it was in New York, but it, it doesn't matter. These kids see Phil perform, and then when he heads into the men's room, they're on his tail. He has no clue. A couple of them hold Phil down on the floor. Another one keeps watch at the door, and another one unzips his khakis and just pisses all over him, humiliates him. Phil is like 20 years old, breaking into showbiz, and he's being held down against the cold, wet tile of a nondescript men's room while piss is raining down on him. Maybe that's why he felt the connection with me. He was humiliated on the floor of a bathroom by some holier-than-thou thugs. I was humiliated on the stage by some holier-than-thou cops. Phil Spector was absolutely fucking nothing like me, but he thought he was, man. What else he thought? I'd never know. And that was the last night I ever saw. August 3rd, 1966, 8825 West Hollywood Boulevard. Not the iconic Hollywood Boulevard that runs parallel to Sunset Boulevard, but the Hollywood Boulevard that passes over Laurel Canyon. The Hollywood Boulevard that retreats up the hill. The one that hides among the oaks and sycamores and eucalyptus trees. The one that gets squirrely, twisted, winding, shady, obscured. That's the Hollywood Boulevard the sirens raced up that night. A little to the west, a phone rang in Phil Spector's house. Word traveled fast. Phil answered the phone, listened to the voice on the other line, didn't say a word. Within seconds, he slammed the receiver down so hard it made the bell ring on the base of the rotary. 
Phil grabbed Danny Davis by the shirt collar, pulled him quickly from the house, and they ran outside. They tore ass to the white caddy. Phil yelled at Danny, told him to get in the car, told him to drive fast. They needed to get over to Lenny's place as quickly as fucking possible. They needed to be there 10 minutes ago. They avoided the strip and went the back roads. They hit Dohini to Sunset Hills, a right onto Oriole, and then Thrasher Ab, Rising Glen Road, Sunset Plaza Drive, and finally banged a hard right onto Hollywood Boulevard. There were cops outside Lenny's place when they arrived. Bright cop lights. Phil was out of the caddy and pacing furiously towards the front door. The cops were standing around, talking low, mumbling under their breath, smoking, cigarette butts with red hot ends flicked to the ground. Phil didn't stop to ask questions or announce his presence. Phil was inside now. He followed the cops, made his way into the living room, past the kitchen, more cops, towards the bathroom, even more cops. And they were like a trail of breadcrumbs, those cops, and they led Phil Spector right to what he'd been told he would find. Lenny Bruce, dead on the floor, next to the John, his pants around his ankles, a needle in his arm. Bloated, half naked, exposed, humiliated. Lenny was gone, daddy-o. Phil looked around at the bathroom full of cops, these goddamn cops. They persecuted Lenny, harassed him, told him what he could and couldn't say, told him which jokes he could tell, told him what words he could say, pulled him from the stage, put him in handcuffs, chewed him up, spat him out, left him for dead. Lenny wasn't the only one exposed and humiliated on a bathroom floor. Phil also thought back to his own bad memory in a bathroom. Bathrooms were a bad scene, man, and this scene was the worst. His heart pounded. He felt himself losing control of his better judgment. He was on his knees now. The cops tried to haul him away, but he stood his ground. You did this, he shouted at every badge in the room. You killed him. An overdose of morphine, fucking ponderous. It was an overdose of police, plain and simple. Phil couldn't shake the police. They came by his office soon after Lenny's death. Fists full of photos from the scene in Lenny's bathroom. The raw shots of Lenny lying prone on the bathroom tile looked like something from Ouija's portfolio. The cops joked that maybe Phil wanted to buy them for one of his album covers. It was a sick joke, but Phil took it as a serious offer. How much, he asked. Five grand, sold. It was a small price to pay to keep them out of someone else's hands, and it was the last piece of Lenny that he could hold on to. Phil couldn't shake Lenny. He paid for the funeral, delivered the eulogy. He hung a giant poster of Lenny directly above his bed, larger than life. In it, Lenny's gaze was tired but foreboding. The look of a man far past his prime, bloated, worn out, scatterbrained, on junk. Phil would climb into bed, find comfort in Lenny's gaze bearing down on him. But his wife, Ronnie Spector, would lay next to him, unable to close her eyes. She'd turn on her side, her stomach, but she always felt Lenny's eyes following her, burning into her, judging her. She would roll onto her back, look up at the overbearing image of the man her husband briefly idolized, his Socrates, he would say, and she felt something was terribly wrong. She felt it was an omen, a warning from beyond the grave and above her bed, something evil. There is no good and there is no evil. There's only blood on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. 
Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1 with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to The 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lee Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. Alright, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll.